here we are, another beautiful morning to practice together, precious opportunity to study and to cultivate this art of loving abiding. I was really um, moved last night by Catherine's talk and many, many, many aspects of it, but also for me the the connection with the oikos of ecology, the home uh, in ancient Greek, this dwelling or inhabiting, and it was the first time my mind had so strongly made that connection between that and the vihara of the Brahma viharas, this dwelling place or abiding place. And how actually when we do this work, we're uh, becoming ecologists internally as well as externally. We're learning how to skillfully inhabit this internal ecology. And of course, it's not separate from the external ecology and the the habits of mind that... uh, create suffering for us internally are the same ones that create the suffering externally. It's like these messed up approaches to nature that we have. Um, They mirror one another. I was thinking how the, the Buddha described this practice, our predicament and the practice, he says it's like human beings are all entangled in a tangle. And how do we untangle the tangle? There's something for us to relearn here about how to disentangle ourselves from the tangle. And I think it's really important to recognize that we're not bad we're simply confused. And these so-called defilements of greed and hatred or greed and aversion, they actually arise out of ignorance or confusion. And so this work of abiding that we do is what enables us to start emerging from that confusion and to begin to untangle the tangle. And we can't untangle the tangle all in one go. You know, if you want to unravel a tangled ball of wool, you don't take a pair of scissors to it and chop through the middle of it. You have to slowly and patiently wind your way. And this is what we're doing. So to have really compassion for our confusion and compassion for the confusion of others. And so this morning I want to turn our attention a little bit towards this quality of equanimity. How can we elicit the possibility of an equanimous or a more equanimous abiding and maybe tune ourselves a little bit to to this quality? Another thing that's been coming to me is around this word upeka, which is the Pali word for equanimity and up or upa means over it's a preposition and eka comes from the word ikati to to look or to see 
And so equanimity is the ability to look upon or to look over events with a sense of the broader and the longer perspective. It's not an overlooking, but it's a look, looking over. But for the first time, it really struck me how important this ikati or the eka part of the word of the upeka is. It's like it's a looking over that really sees, that really sees suffering. It sees joy. It sees the full um, display of our human lives in all their dimensions. And we were talking about the, the other form of the statue of Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara that has a thousand hands all wielding different implements with which to respond to the suffering of the world. And in the palm of each hand, there's an eye. So not only does she have a thousand hands, but she has a thousand eyes. There's nothing that uh, is missed out from her benevolent gaze. Yeah. So this is the quality that we, we're attuning to, uh, to, that we're offering ourselves as a possibility. So equanimity is not something detached, but it's very much another face of love. There's a lot that we learn in our observation of the nature in here about equanimity, but also the nature out there can be a, a big teacher for us. So uh, the other morning I was sitting out under the tree and uh, saw a robin come very close to me and was enjoying watching the robin and feeling this upwelling of warmth in the heart towards this robin and it was pecking away at the ground and then I saw, oh, it's pecking a worm. Yeah. And my heart went out to the worm and I was just sort of feeling, gosh, what, how, how terrifying it must be to be being pecked at with a ro by a robin. And that there's this impulse to leap up and to intervene and to go and save the worm from the robin. But, you know, I, I don't know that my intervention would have saved the worm and then the robin would have had no breakfast. And this is the way of nature, you know. So at a certain point, I was just contemplating all these diff different movements of the heart towards what was happening. And in the end, there was a decision actually, in this case, I, I'm, you know, I have to leave this intact. I have to let this be. It's not my place to jump in and do something. Of course, if it had been a two-year-old boy who was bullying a worm or something, I would have intervened. But this was the matter of the robin's life and the robin's breakfast. So we, it's this kind of wider perspective is the one that sees all of this, to, feels it, but then actually makes a, a skillful choice or knows how to make a skillful choice of whether it's appropriate to intervene or not. There's also a flavor of equanimity, which is the flavor of being able to stand or abide in the midst of things. And particularly to weather what we call the worldly winds. And these are quite a few useful things to name in the context of what destabilizes us or knocks us off center. So these are the winds of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, of praise and blame, and of fame and disrepute. And we can see how um, 
how much of the upheaval or the agitation of our retreat and our day-to-day -day experience is this uh, constant search for something that will be better than whatever discomfort I'm experiencing now. So we might be sitting and, uh, and you know, we're kind of achy and, and stiff or feeling restless. And we think, well, you know, when the bell goes and it's time for walking meditation, then I'll go and I'll, I'll, I'll really get it. And then we're walking and for a while it's really pleasant. And then we start to get a little bit bored and we think, oh, when the bell goes, I'll go and sit. And then that will be the moment. Yeah. We do this over and over and over to ourselves. Or you know, we think, oh, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of had enough of being on retreat. It'll be better when I get home. And then we get home and we think, oh, it was much better on retreat. When can I book the next retreat? Yeah. <laughs> And and we're not. We're, this is us being letting ourselves being blown around by the inevitable ups and downs of pleasant and unpleasant experience, and and then we create so much stress for ourselves, don't we? Out to trying to kind of manage and contain that slipperiness, the natural slipperiness of life, rather than to just let ourselves inhabit it. And that also that. Um, you know, inability to see that the uh, response to pleasant and unpleasant that that uh, is going to lead us to peace or that is onward leading is not about bouncing, ricocheting from one to the other. You know, that's what's driving our drive to overconsume, uh, to damage uh, ourselves and the world around us. And so it's worth reflecting that even if we even if we were to succeed in cooling this beautiful planet of ours, you know, every each and every living creature is still going to age, is still going to be subject to sickness, is still going to be subject to loss, to be subject to eventual you know, dissolution and decay. And and to not kind of um they're not uh, not to, uh, you know, fool ourselves in the moment that, that, that that's not so. So to learn to inhabit those ups and downs of life with grace and, yes, with equanimity. And I think those worldly winds, they explain why it's so, so difficult to, for our minds and our hearts to let go around things, even though we know that um, there are things that we can't control. So I think that that's kind of obvious in uh, some ways around these, this, the business of happiness and suffering and gain and loss, but also in the case of praise and blame and fame and disrepute of judging ourselves and judging others and fearing judgment from others, fearing criticism from others. Uh, even at the time of the Buddha, even the Buddha himself was subject to praise and blame. Everybody is subject to praise and blame. There's nobody who's ever done every, anything that everybody liked or um, <laughs> that uh, everybody disliked. And yet we try to manage that too. So there's this, the, the feelings of shame and guilt, which are natural. They come from the, fe the feeling of shame is a very natural response that the the organism wants we want we want to stay connected as to those on whom we just depend for support but that habit carries on even where it's 
no longer relevant. And we kind of preempt our fear of criticism or blame from others by criticizing or blaming ourselves. Or we kind of know what the wise course of action is, but we're afraid, we're destabilized because we we still have this belief that we can stop other people talking badly about us or disagreeing. So the more we can unhook or, or stand firm in the middle of these worldly winds, the more the more freedom we have. So the Upeka sees things with a sense of compassion. And as I said, you know, nature has has much to teach us. And I hope that in your time here, you've had some time to really be with uh, the beauty of the world outside of the uh, outside of here. And thinking about perfection, you know, we we expect ourselves still probably I catch myself doing that. We still expect ourselves to be perfect in some ways to measure up to something. But looking at the trees and the bushes out there, you know, which which of those trees is perfect? Which of those bushes is perfect? Which is more perfect than the others? It's like, you know, is the is it the lilac that's perfect or the wisteria or the plane tree or the apple tree or the or the oak? You know? Everything is in, in nature is different. It's we're, and we're all different. We're supposed to be different. And they're changing each from season to season. And when are, when are they right? When have they finally got it right? <laughs> when are you finally going to get it right? You know? And trees wait a long time for their chance to grow as well. So in, the, in the forest, you know, the, the young saplings, they wait many years, many decades for the space to open up in the canopy that they can start to grow towards the light. They have a lot of skill in patience. And also I've spent a lot of time here contemplating the the plane tree out there and seeing all the, the places where it's lost limbs over the years. You know, it's experienced a lot of loss, that tree. It, and it's been there Probably, I don't know, I haven't checked that out with Sarah, but uh, a few hundred years, I imagine. And you can see the places that really big limbs have fallen off or, or had to be surgically removed. And over the, those few hundred years, the tree has changed shape completely, but it, it doesn't, I don't think, sit there lamenting you know, the the past that it didn't have or the past that it should have or the mistakes that it's made in the past. Uh, and if you if you had somebody had photographed it every fifty years or so, you almost probably if you put the silhouettes of those photographs you wouldn't next to each other, you wouldn't recognise it as the same tree because it's changed shape so many times. And yet, when we see it with appreciative eyes, in every moment of its existence, it has a perfection to it. So why couldn't we be a little bit more like that? You know, we, have, we live with such a powerful myth of needing to have been different or to be different in order to be acceptable to ourselves or acceptable to one another. So I think the trees, and I hope you have time and have had time to spend time with them, they have a lot to teach us about patience and about forgiveness and about understanding. And I love 
This word understanding, our ability to stand under. So we've been, we've been practicing equanimity already. I'm not going to give you a new practice of equanimity, just to draw your attention to this, this um, note in the chord, if you like, of the music that we've been making. When we practice the steadiness of attention and the interest and caring, uh, upeka is already there. We've been cultivating this sense of being earth resting on earth. Um, I I mentioned this gesture of actually intentionally touching the earth. This is the classic gesture of equanimity that we see uh, in representations of the Buddha. And he had this instruction that he gave um, on many occasions, but particularly to his his young son when he was teaching him meditation, to let your meditation become like the earth. Let your mind become as vast as the earth. So the body can rest into the earth, the heart can rest into the body, and the mind rests into the heart. And they, or he didn't say that, Catherine said that, but yeah. It's equally wise. <laughs> And letting all of it be as vast as the earth. And to call on the support, give ourselves permission to call on the support of that which is bigger than us. So the earth. That which is more than you, that which even feels, if this is a meaningful word to you, sacred. So the earth for me is a, is, is a metaphor almost, although it's again not separate from this, but for whatever we might feel called to offer ourselves into, to that to which you might feel called to offer yourself. And that offering is a gesture of humility and of humanness. And it's also a metaphor for that, and maybe it's that that same thing is that from which you might have felt or intuited or even known somewhere in the depths of yourself the possibility of grace, that there is support there when we have the humility to stop and to ask to look for it to tap in so this really this suggestion that we are not peacemakers we are the peace receivers but for that to happen we have to be receptive to it okay so I'm gonna maybe stop reflecting and guide us in a little bit of meditation, guide us into some meditation. So make yourself comfortable.
And you can let the gesture of your posture, of your taking your seat, be uh, an expression of the intention towards this wide but loving perspective. This loving equanimity. Giving back once more your weight to the earth. Feeling your roots and feeling your uprightness, this vertical axis. The branches of your limbs resting in the place that's just right for them, for now. The pores of your skin breathing. And an intention to stay here. You might ask yourself what kind of breath does the body want to breathe right now? And you might, if you feel so inclined, just have a sense of the breath rising from the ground. This gentle pulsing of the body, the breath rising from the ground up through the trunk of the body, 
and returning. yourself as the tree in which the sap rises and returns. The breath enters and leaves. open to the space around you. <coughs> and like a tree, you can Sit in the midst of the winds of change. Of the winds of the voices of judgment or criticism that belong not to you but to wherever they originated. You don't have to pick them up. <coughs> and let the breath and the abiding let the sap running in your veins channel peace. Peace to your imperfections, peace to the judge and the critic. Peace to your confusion. Peace to the confusion in the world around you. What kind of breath would this body like to breathe?
and letting these roots that support you and your steadiness, this attention and this intention, settle a little deeper. and abide.
So you can, in a moment, take your practice outside into a walking meditation. And to see how does this body want to walk just now? What would best support uh, my abiding, this uh, remaining in touch with yourself and the moment? And also recognizing that this is a, a, a precious opportunity. Uh, where else can you go and walk as purposelessly, as slowly as you might fancy, as exploringly as you might fancy? Where can you stop and stand at any time you choose and do nothing and nobody interrupt you or nobody look at you and think what you know you're doing something funny so give yourself really the the space and permission to do that and as i said before breakfast we find ourselves um spending our time wondering how we're going to abide in the future <laughs> let yourself uh, answer that question by abiding now, developing the art of abiding now. And uh, for those of you who'd like to, um, in this walking meditation, um, Catherine will be in the lounge. And anybody who has questions that they'd like to bring to Catherine, you're welcome to go to the lounge for an optional question session. And just a request that if you do do that, you, you go at the beginning and that you don't uh, drift in and out, that we, we make these sessions somewhat contained. Um, and uh, in the next walking meditation, if you have a question that you'd like to put to me uh, particularly, or you just feel like this is the time when you want to bring questions to somebody, one or the other of us, um, uh, so I will be there in the lounge in the second walking meditation. And if anybody has something that they feel they'd really like to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation about, then Matt is offering some sign-ups. So there's a couple of slots during this meditation. And if there's a need for more, we can maybe find a way to, to figure that out. Um, so... Uh, many options we're re-entering the world of <laughs> multiple options but so take a moment to listen to yourself and see okay what is it that this body heart mind really needs right now what would nourish your abiding and then there'll be another sitting at uh, 11 o'clock and that sitting will be a, a silent sitting in here i will i will be here so yes Sorry, yeah, you've written you. So it would probably be good if you come and bring it to bring it to one of the sessions. Yeah, sorry, yeah, thank you. Okay. All right. You can let Catherine and anybody who wants to uh, meet in the lounge leave first.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.